as soon as we sort of accept the fact, finally and forever, that network neutrality is essential for the well-being of infrastructure, as soon as we stop blaming ISPs for the content they carry and stop incenting ISPs to blackmail content providers to get money to carry that content, as soon as we stop that and actually have a neutral, independent carriage infrastructure, the better off we're all going to be. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, joins us today for his monthly chat, which is a follow-up of sorts to a discussion we had in episode 13 about the historical feuding between carriers and content providers. In particular, the current iteration playing out in Korea, where South Korean internet service provider SK Broadband is suing Netflix to pay for the costs of increased network traffic and maintenance work because of a surge in viewers since 2018. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. Hello, Robbie, and uh, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jeff. We've just got back from APNIC 54, our first face-to-face conference since the beginning of 2020, so it was good to reacquaint myself with the world outside of Australia and see plenty of friendly and familiar faces again. Ah, travel again. Ah, travel. We might talk about travel today, but that's not exactly why we're here, to muse about the return of travel after a few COVID-blighted years. I want to talk about something subtly different that, oddly enough, is a really old topic of conversation, but we keep on wanting to return to it. And that is an age-old conversation in the internet as to who pays who to keep this stuff running. Where does the money flow and why? And while in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was this weird, pervasive call that the internet must be free. And by free, they didn't necessarily mean not restricted. They meant, I don't want to pay for it. And it's kind of, well, if you're not going to pay for it, I'm not going to pay for it. Who's going to pay for it? Well, no, they say the internet must be free. Okay. So we emerged that we're all paying for this. But you might be a customer of very well-esteemed ISP A, I might be a customer of ISP B, and when we start exchanging traffic, well, A is spending some money on your behalf to move some packets around the place, and B is spending some money on my behalf for me to receive those packets and send some back to you, but what do A and B do? Magic. Magic, magic. And I suppose the first realisation in all of this discussion is this is a really old discussion. It certainly is. If I remember correctly from our last chat on this, it's a feud that's been playing out within the communications industry for 200 years with the current iteration playing out in Korea. Well, I'm going to bring back Korea and then take it further because obviously the folk who feel that they're losers don't accept the answer. They want to fight it once more. And the folk who feel that they've made their point and carried the day obviously don't want to bring it up again. But it just continues to sit in the background and just sort of see there as a simmering level of discontent 
And uh, lately, it's come up again in the context of ETNO, the European Telephone Operators Club. Now, to be perfectly frank, it's the historically surprising alliance of uh, France Telecom and the uh, Deutsche Telekom companies. Surprising because the French and the Germans never get on. But, you know, there they are in a historically almost unique alliance trying desperately hard to um, revive the concept that the content folk owe them a living. And this has come up in the context of reviving the notion of sender pays and bringing it back up to the regulatory regimes, both in the European context with a group of uh, European regulators called BEREC, but also with an eye to the ITU, the International Telecommunications Conference, the single treaty-based organisation that actually, in theory, is the place where all governments resolve their issues in international communications by virtue of having signed up to this treaty or convention. So it keeps on coming back and everyone continues to sharpen their knives and tries to sort of refine their arguments because this time they might win. And, and, you know, this is why it's back again. So we have a bit to unpack in this episode, including a little refresher as to the current situation in Korea and why Etno in Europe and certain ISPs in the US opposed to net neutrality are interested in how current regulation plays out there. To start, Jeff, it might be helpful to understand the difference between providers and customers within the internet service provider industry, as this reveals a lot about the tensions that have arisen and why providers are seeking a slice of the content pie. Right, so let's get into the airline business for just a second. Okay, that's not where I thought you'd take us first, but you did say we'd talk about travel. I bought an airline ticket recently from Qantas. Now, The final leg was done on a different carrier, American Airlines. I didn't pay them. I landed and took off again from a whole bunch of different airports on this trip, multiple legs, and a whole bunch of different customs agents, different uh, baggage handlers, and a huge amount of different services were all sort of aligned to deliver me and my luggage to my intended destination. I didn't pay them. I paid Qantas, and Qantas effectively paid a bunch of folk, including presumably American Airlines and others, and of course the baggage handlers, the landing fees, the this, the that, on my behalf. So I didn't have to wander through airports dispensing money as I went. I didn't have to do all that. I, the passenger, paid a service orchestrator, Qantas, who then orchestrated a whole bunch of services and presumably settled up with them uh, financially, in order to conduct me and my luggage from A to B. Now, it's quite seamless, and that was the way it was intended to be. So let's take that experience and map that into, if anyone remembers it, what used to happen in telephony. Because in the old days when we used these things called telephones, you paid for every call you made. Now, in some countries like America, local calls were free. That was your phone rental, your annual monthly rental. Just said, whatever you want, doesn't cost. 
But Trump calls, calls to other cities, calls to international destinations, you had to pay by the minute. In other regimes, uh, Australia is a good example, it was a hybrid. You paid a certain amount per call, but you could talk for days if you wanted for local calls. But if you went Trump calling or international calling, you paid by the second. And then there were some aberrants. The Indonesian system, I've been told, had three-minute phone call tariffs. And at the end of three minutes, the call just got dropped. (laughs) So you had to talk in three-minute chunks, which is a unique application of timed local calls. But, you know, how did the providers balance up? Because if I called you and you were in, let's say, another country, because that's a very good example, I paid for the cost of the call. And when you picked up the phone, because you didn't know it was me calling, you didn't even have the option to pay, and you weren't going to pay. For you, it was free as the receiver. I'm paying for the complete call, a bit like my airline ticket. So I pay my local telephone company operator now so many dollars a minute or so many thousands of dollars a minute, who knows, I've forgotten. And they paid the international telephone provider for Australia. OTC, as it was called at one point. Now, they had purchased, or were in fact uh, renting, leasing, whatever, international facilities across the Pacific. Let's go to America. And on the other side was an equivalent American international operator. Let's call them AT&T. Now, AT&T had costs too, because they absorbed some of the costs of the transit of this call through the Pacific, And there were also costs in terminating that phone call. Now, I didn't pay them directly. They don't know me from anyone else. I paid my local telephone company operator, who then settled financially with the others. So in the telephone world, the basic structure was, if you dial, you pay. And picking up the phone, answering it was free. Sender pays. Now, you could argue about whether that was good or not. It certainly had some amazing outcomes. Up until the internet, the telephone network was the largest sort of communications network humanity had ever constructed. At one stage, it employed more people than any other activity on the planet. Hundreds of thousands of worker bees in in every single country in the world. It was all funded. Uh, with the exception of America, on public funds. It was all operated as part of the public space. And it was incredibly successful. We all were telephone users. We're all trained in, you know, how to use a telephone book, how how to use a telephone, how to dial or press the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But while it worked in some senses, others were remarkably unhappy. A good example of that was actually transatlantic. If you happened to find yourself in Paris and you called America, you might find that they were going to charge you a lot of money, tens or even hundreds of francs per second or per minute or whatever the unit was to dial America. But if you're in America, the cost to call someone in France was a much, much lower tariff. So the obvious thing happened. Americans dialed France and few French dialed America. So AT&T was getting a lot of money 
because they were getting all that revenue from American phone subscribers dialing into France. But they had an obligation done through the regulations that were kind of cooked up in the ITU. Those regulations actually had a mechanism for international call accounting. And so AT&T had to pay France Telecom to terminate all those calls at a rate of so many US dollars per minute in hard cash. So every accounting period, month, quarter, year, who cares, they'd sit there and say, well, I terminated 300 minutes from your users and you terminated 1,500 minutes from me. I guess I owe you money. And what was happening, of course, is that almost every country played this game on America because Americans were rich. And AT&T was shelling out billions of dollars a month. It was said at one point that 95% of the Laotian GDP, and it's not a very big GDP, it's not a rich country by any means, but 95% of that was actually AT&T paying them call accounting settlement fees. So the system was clearly corrupt. According to AT&T, highly corrupt. This system was being abused internationally because while the ITUT said there must be call accounting settlement, they kind of refrained from specifying how much. It was up to individual bilateral negotiation. So life was bearable to some extent. I might America was paying, but some politicians in America viewed this as part of international aid and general goodness. It was extension of the Marshall Plan to a global level. Uh, while the folk in AT&T, because AT&T was not, despite appearances to the contrary, a government department, it had shareholders. It was trying to sort of make a living in all this. It was hemorrhaging money. And so they wanted to stop it. Now, when AT&T wants to stop it, this is not a small decision. They had an entire massive building in Washington, D.C. to lobby U.S. politicians. And so that they took the line of saying that the ITUT were evil. This was not the harmonic resolution of various international you know, differences into a, an outcome that was sort of bearable by all. This was pure malice and evilness personified. These folk were just anti-American. And when the internet came along, AT&T managed to convince basically the Clinton administration, but it was a, bigger than any political administration. This was a long-term strategy that they could see the telephone network was dying. It was pretty clear the internet was going to go through this, you know, like a bulldozer. And so they made the decision to lobby Congress to withhold the internet from the ITUT. Withhold it completely. So no more international call accounting settlement payments. No more regulated payments. Everything was a market. And so the rest of the world had to live with the Americans saying, if you want to play with the internet, if you want to join our internet, the ITUT has nothing to do with it. Pay us money or we'll pay you. It's a market and we will figure out between ourselves how to interact. 
So all of a sudden, instead of rules, regulations, and court accounting settlement payments, and all that stuff, there was a more brutal mechanism, much more brutal, about who paid who. Now, again, I'll bring back a bit of history here about the initial build of the internet, and a country like Australia is a very good example. You're kind of seeing all these computers and wanting to connect them up together. Fair enough. You've got a local telephone company. You can lease circuits. That's fine. But where do you connect to? Where is the rest of the internet? On the other side of the world. And there are many other sides of the world, 220-odd countries. Do you, you actually string little bits of, of fibre or copper or whatever you want to use to terminate circuits in every single one of those? Well, you could but people don't live long enough. This is just crazy talk. So you kind of do what's, I suppose, rational. You look at your biggest trading partner for packets, which at the time was clearly America, and you said to the Americans, look, I'm going to pay you. I'm going to be your customer. And in return, you're going to deliver my packet wherever it's destined. So I don't have to make a separate circuit to the Czech Republic or to Athens or to London or anywhere else. If I offload my packets when they come out of the Pacific, dry them off, and then pass them to an American transit provider, it's a done deal. I'm out of here. I'm going to pay you money. You're going to deliver the world. It wasn't international call accounting settlement. I paid. And whether the packet was incoming into Australia or outgoing from Australia, it was at my cost when it entered, if you will, my network. So that was a big departure for the telephone system. Huge departure. Because now there was kind of only two beasts in the jungle. There were providers and there were customers. And what made you a provider or what made you a customer was a very, very vexed topic for the industry. The situation I've described, it's hard to see that Australia could say to the Americans, no, 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 we're not going to pay you, you're going to pay us. It was never going to happen. All this comes down to size, doesn't it? Which is something that we've discussed quite lengthy on this podcast in terms of centralisation. Right. The Chinese at the time actually had one circuit operated via... Um, some kind of sprint program, heavily congested, lousy quality. And they said to all the providers, well, sure, come to any of our border ports and you can connect to the nascent Chinese internet. Bring your checkbook, you're paying. And the rest of the world went kind of, but your internet's tiny, your user base is tiny. What's the story? And they said, we're learning this game. And we've figured out what you probably figured out too. It's a game of bluff. If I can convince you I'm bigger than you, then you pay. And it kind of led to some awfully weird tactics. The only reason why you don't pay each other, because there was an alternative. If we both kind of agree we're about the same size and there's no real commercial benefit to one part or the other, we can do the equivalent of what the insurance company used to call knock for knock, and in this industry called SKA or sender keep all. Because if we go back into the telephone world, let's just make the observation, I think it was um, Bell, Pacific Bell, Pat Bell, 
who at one point divulged that when they did internally accounted phone calls, local phone calls, and tried to charge the consumer 25 cents per call, it was costing 23 cents to do the accounting to charge people 25 cents. You know, the call was nothing. It was free. It's just network capacity. There was oodles of it. But, oh, my God, accounting for every call? No, 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 no. So at that level, instead of doing detailed accounting on which atoms moved in which direction, it's often a whole lot easier to say, we're not getting commercial benefit relatively one to the other. Why don't we just keep our own money and just call it quits? And so there emerged two kinds of interconnections in this world. SKA connections, or what was commonly known as peering, where you just don't pay each other. And there were provider-client relations, where one party paid the other. Now, what made you a customer? What made you a provider? What made you a peer? No rules. This is a market. We wanted a market. We got a market. There are no rules. There's no ITUT definitions of you're a provider if dot, dot, dot. So every provider who saw themselves as big started saying, I will peer with you. You will not be a customer, but I will exchange traffic with you free of charge if you meet the following criteria. Now, you could say that. You can say that as often as you like. But in reality, I suppose it was a much more brutal thing happening. The two of you get into a room, party A, party B, and the discussion is, let's interconnect and figure out who should pay who. Who's bigger? Who's the customer? Who's the provider? The first person who walks away, I'm guessing, is the provider as they have the least to lose. Right, because the first person who says, no, I need this, don't leave, is a customer. It's, it's that simple. If your need is greater than the other party, you have self-identified as a customer. Now, the other way about this is this industry is lazy. Either that or it's not very clever, or maybe it's both. And so instead of having these negotiations time and time again, we started this thing called tiering or clubs, or to use a very nasty word, cartels. So you got known by your peers. So everyone who peered with you formed a cosy little set. And anyone who was a peer in that, you could hardly insist that they be a customer of you if you're part of the same set. Peering kind of applied across all elements. So you were known by the people you peered with. For those who aren't totally across the idea of tiers and peers, this resembles your aviation example from the start, doesn't it? This is like the alliances of different airlines and they have an agreement with each other to get passengers from A to B via this alliance or network. Well, that's right. And tier ones, the top of the tree, don't peer with folk who are tiny, regional and insulated. No, 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 no. They're customers. The only folk they're willing to entertain a $0 conversation with the folk who had a similarly sized network, a similar investment, a similar sort of set of connectivity. And in theory, oddly enough, that was because it didn't matter to either of them. They were already everywhere they wanted to be. The marginal benefit of having this, this peering was small enough that, okay, so you're not a peer, doesn't matter. 
as soon as it became a bigger desire from one party or the other, you got thrown out of the tier one club and you became a tier two because you couldn't survive, right? Guess who was a tier two? Deutsche Telekom, France Telekom. Were there any European ISPs who were tier one? Well, no, not really. <laughs> so they're not getting the slice of the pie that they used to get as in the telephone days, which is why they're now allying. Well, this is the thing. It used to be in the telephone world, we all kind of paid each other. In this internet world, it was increasingly, we all pay Americans. We all pay US you know, tier ones. Uh, everybody else is a tier two or lower. General unhappiness. But nevertheless, in some ways, if my competitors have the same costs as me, I'm okay because you discharge the customers. So this was, although it had some areas of discontent, at the sort of commercial level, it really didn't isolate anyone and leave them disadvantaged. What it did meant, though, at a national level is a huge amount of money heading into America and not much heading back. And this was not what was wanted out of the traditional telephone players, who were also internet players. So let's put that to one side at the moment and look at the rise of Google and the rise of Apple and the rise of Netflix and the rise of Akamai and the rise of content. Because right alongside all this fight about moving packets around the world was actually another more subtle fight about why are you doing this? This isn't a human who is physically constrained to live somewhere that I'm trying to get in touch with. This is just a computer with content that happens to be located somewhere else. Aha, says someone who doesn't even need to be very clever. Aha, why did I copy their storage and their entire system and put it close to you? Because when you have an abundance of computing, an abundance of storage, you can start to do a different kind of provisioning. You don't go to the one critical black hole resource on the planet. You don't go to get your feeds from Microsoft to the data center in Seattle. That's crazy. You pre-provision just in case rather than just in time. And you replicate that content everywhere. That's going to cost a lot of disk space. Sure, disks are free. Go away. So the content folk started to drive their way around the carriage folk. All of a sudden, I didn't need transit. I just needed content because what the users were paying for wasn't like telephony, the ability to move you know, my data around the world. They were actually paying for content. And so as a carriage provider, all I needed to do was to deliver the content to the user from the last mile. It was in my interests, oddly enough, or so I thought, to bring the content closer to the user. And that was Akamai's business model way, way back in the late 90s, that they were going to put content caches in every single internet service provider, load them up with you know, highly desired content because all users do the same thing, and serve locally and thereby save the internet service provider from a huge amount of cost in moving packets. And Akamai were able to bill the content provider for the service of having their traffic delivered across a global infrastructure that only had last mile cost. So 
Akamai got paid not by the ISP, but actually by content. Now, this was a neat idea, but like all neat ideas on the internet, the issue was everyone started to do it. Literally everyone, because, you know, why not? And in some ways, this is the best thing that could have happened for the internet. Distance is your enemy. Distance makes protocols go slower. Distance makes everything more expensive. The cost per kilometer just inexorably rises when you go have to go under the sea for a few thousand kilometers, when you have to pay all of these other folk to deliver your packets. Why don't we get rid of all that cost and push it back to the content people and basically allow Akamai to put a server in my rack and then I don't have to pay for this stuff? I've only got a last mile problem. Isn't this great? I feel there's a but coming on. Well, that's right. Things got a little bit brutal and it was actually hidden deeply in the economics of broadband. These last mile access networks were not really terribly well understood. Now, you can kind of understand why to some extent. The early days of the internet, we were doing 14,000 bits per second and a 56,000 bit per second wire so fast. Why would you ever possibly want to do that? And then we brought along DSL and DSL upped the ante from the whole dial-up modem screeches that just trickled the data through. We then got the raging torrents of DSL, which if you were really lucky, you could squeeze, you had 22, 23, even 25 megabits per second out of your telephone copper pair. Why would you ever want to do that? Aha. Uh-huh. You see, bandwidth is a self-fulfilling prophecy that if I install enough access bandwidth, applications that you could never have dreamt of become easy. It may sound totally foreign to many of today's listeners, but the whole idea of having pictures and sound on the internet was not a feature of the 1980s. The big application at the time, these sort of bulletin board services and various other forms of of navigating through networks was all text characters on a black and white screen. What's this picture nonsense? And as soon as we actually had bandwidth, we jumped at a more immersive experience. And once you get up to megabits per second, it's all video. It's all streaming. It's all pervasive content. Now, we didn't stop at DSL. No, 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 no. DSL is almost like a miracle of trying to make those copper pairs sing when they really weren't built for it. And, and it was pretty clear that fibre-based broadband networks were in the long run so much easier to make fast. Fibre does not rust the same way as copper. Once you've installed fibre, you can actually up the clock speed, as we've seen lots of times without you know, many problems. And so it was possible to actually start creating infrastructure that didn't run at megabits per second, that actually started to run at hundreds of megabits per second. Gigabits per second, thousands of megabits per second to the customer. Korea had the fastest broadband on the planet. All those folk in those multi-tenement apartment units were busy enjoying fiber tails that were clocked at gigabits. They were the fastest broadband country on the planet in 2012. 
But as we discussed in a previous episode, while you had really good internet infrastructure at the endpoints, the same could not be said about the backbone network infrastructure, which created massive... um... Bottlenecks, choke points. You see, if I connect up 10 houses at a gigabit, and so I put them all into a local concentrator, curbside unit, whatever, and therefore I've got 10 by 10 gigabits, how big should the wire be back up to the next concentrator? Well, if I was wanting a stress-free, congestion-free network, that should be 100 gig. Okay, so for 10 houses, I need 100 gig. But, you know, who wires up 10 houses? Puh. I need to wire up 10,000. Ooh, I need terabits. But you can't get terabits in a wire yet. You can just today, but your checkbook isn't big enough and neither is mine. So I don't. I just don't. I wire this stuff up and do a concentration factor of hundreds or thousands to one. So for every thousand megabits of capacity going into people's houses, I put one megabit of capacity back up into the internal infrastructure. And I just pray and hope that not everyone presses the accelerator on their digital equipment at the same time. And that was the Korean experience back in 2012. Samsung were busy trying to sell high-definition televisions and started to realise that broadcast television just didn't cut the mustard. It wasn't good enough. picture was crappy. So they decided to stream 4K TV. We've got the world's fastest broadband network. What's the problem? <laughs> the problem was <laughs> it was melting Korea Telecom's internal network. It was certainly possible to deliver high-definition TV out to the edge, but Samsung servers weren't at every edge concentration point. They were, you know, over at Samsung headquarters. And so Korea Telecom took the odd position of basically blacklisting or banning every Samsung television from their broadband network. They were doing what we call MAC address filtering. Oops. Off to the courts they trundle. We have a problem here. And the courts basically said at the time, back in 2012, you know, Korea Telecom, you advertised a product and a service and you didn't build it. You built something entirely different. Why should Samsung be the victim of your short-sighted, lousy engineering? You've got to fix this, not Samsung. Get rid of these blocks. Allow them to stream. It's not a problem. You have to upgrade the network. Grumble, grumble, okay, let's go there. So they did. And it kind of cemented this issue that the user is paying the local access provider for all the actions of that user. Now, whether I suck down a massive data set or just use it for the occasional message is is my issue not the providers, and certainly not the content manufacturers. So along comes Netflix and Google with YouTube, all these other streamers across the world, taking advantage of this. All this high-speed broadband infrastructure, great. Let's create alternatives to broadcast television because we don't have to pay for the carriage here. As long as we distribute the content then it's the user paying for that last mile of feed. And the users are willing to do it as well because they're after their entertainment fix. 
And of course, the carrier's busy going, the only reason why you're paying small amounts of dollars per month is that I went cheap. I didn't build a terabit infrastructure in my access network. I didn't make this so that I can actually push a gigabit per second of content to every house at the same time, every night. I didn't. I'm relying on the fact that broadband is a promise that could never be fulfilled, not for everyone, not at the same time. And if anyone ever tries to call me out on that, they should pay for the damage they cause. Why does content get a free ride on my network? Why is Google and Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all enjoying a free ride on my network that I paid for? And quite frankly, I don't want to make this a $1,000 a month for users. I want to make it accessible. So I can't do all this, says the telco, says the access provider. We didn't build it that way, and you're using it as if we did. We can't afford it. So the initial Korean fight in 2012 between content and provider was won by content, but that didn't stop the fight from breaking out elsewhere, did it, Jeff? So that simmering tension never went away, and it resurfaced again in America in these large battles over net neutrality. Because, you see, the obvious answer was to say to the streaming content, look, you're the pain point. You're the person who's making my life incredibly hard. So tell you what, this is simple. Either you pay me money or I damage your content and put you through a choke point, a throttle. Pre, if you will, damage your content streams so that they don't get further damaged further down the line. So you might want to stream a gigabit per second to each user who turns on, you know, the next episode of Game of Thrones. But, you know, no, unless you pay me bucket loads of money, it ain't going to happen. Now, this is an old fight between carriage and content. And it all tends to circle around the issue of common carrier. Or in the United States terms, a fight between... Title two, title three. You see, if I'm a blessed carrier, then I actually can't look at the packet. I can't look at the content. I have to carry all content to the customer without any degree of special treatment, without any degree of differentiation. I can't go to Netflix and say, Psst, pay me money or, you know, nice looking streamer you got here, shame if anything happened to it. I can't do that if I'm a common carrier. But if my ISP business is a value-added overlay, so it's not a common carrier, all bets are off. It's the market. Hi, Netflix, how much are you willing to pay? Or, you know, damage. And oddly enough, the fight in the US has been one of wavering between political administrations. The FCC at one point came out strongly in favour of net neutrality. It became a big issue in America. And ISPs were classified under the same structure as carriers that they weren't allowed to differentiate on content. And then along came Ajit Pai, Mr Trump as president, and a complete reversal. No, you're not common carriers. You're basically value-added service providers. Do what you want, whatever. 
And now, of course, that the new administration, not so new anymore, it's back into question again, and it's likely to swing back the other way. And so all of a sudden, net neutrality gives content folk almost a free ride across these access networks. Now, what do we assume? I'm talking to you, Robbie, but let's, let's assume for one second that, you know, this is a wonderful podcast. We put it on all the streaming services and it goes out to the world and you, dear listener, are listening. Do I have to pay to get my content streamed to you? We have to pay the content provider to upload our content to their streaming services that are distributed to different data centers around the world, but listeners don't necessarily have to pay to access it if they've got a free account. Well, Robbie, not even that. Because let's just dream for a second and dream that, you know, tomorrow this is the most popular podcast on the planet. If only, but let's dream. Let's dream, you're right. Folk will be beating a path to our door to carry that podcast for free. All the advertising, all the association, all the other forms of intangible funding basically mean that it's all funded by somebody else, by advertising. So, no, I don't have to pay. And that assumption is actually pretty common for most parts of content, that the sender doesn't pay. You're contracted as a user to both send and receive traffic, send and receive. The sender doesn't pay. Now, this came up because Korea, early this year, 2022, late last year, 2021, with Netflix and now the other major provider in Korea, SK Telecom. Because, of course, a lot of Koreans, like everyone else, are busy using their their little mobile thingies. And the one thing we know about mobile devices is spectrum is not infinite. It's actually quite expensive. And huge amounts of spectrum are hugely expensive. And so the bandwidth is not a free resource. And if you're trying to sort of make money as a mobile provider, the last thing you want is Netflix doing 4K or 5K or 8K streams across your network because they maintain the pressure on your network at extremely high data rates for very long times. And if all the customers turn this on at the same time, I die. Now, who should pay me to make it better? Not the users, since that's a good way to lose customers. So Netflix. Great idea. But Netflix does not stream content in Korea. They're sitting in Japan. They're not even a customer of SK Telecom. So this doesn't deter SK Telecom. Off to the regulator. Netflix must pay. But but they're not even connected to you. How can they pay? You're the regulator. Make it happen. But this time it's portrayed as the struggling domestic entrepreneur beating their head against the might of this overseas exploiter, this American content giant. And guess what? Well, you don't have to guess. You know what the answer is. Netflix, you have to pay. But of course, these days, every local decision is global. And the folk who are listening most intently, most intently uh, to this victory on the side of the communications folk was, of course, our dear friends Etno in Europe, France Telecom, Deutsche Telekom. And, of course, the carrier cabal in the US, Verizon, etc. And, of course, this is manna from heaven. Well, the Koreans, very sensible people, obviously made a sound and considered decision. No more net neutrality nonsense. Content must pay. 
And now it's off to all of the various sort of international you know, conferences, the wickets, etc. cetera, the, the rule makers going, streamers must pay. And you kind of wonder just how dumb these people are. By which you mean, Jeff, that service providers risk content providers doubling down on their investment in submarine cable transit and data center distribution infrastructure and extending it to last mile transit too. But you should be very careful what you wish for, shouldn't you? As I said before, the issue was the transit providers were not doing a good job. They were struggling to get sufficient capital. They were not incented to up the entire building activity for international connectivity, and the network and users were having a hard time. And the answer was, well, computers are easy to make. Storage is easy to make. All this is easy. And distributing content is just a software problem. So why don't I, as Google, get into the submarine cable business? Why don't I, as Facebook, as Amazon, as Microsoft, start building my own content distribution network? The beauty of this is I'm not waiting for anyone else. I'm not cross-subsidizing them. I'm not waiting for them to make a myriad of decisions, I have control over the quality of my distribution network. And that has meant that every single new cable project now has content distribution networks as the dominant partners. Dominant. And the telcos are just riding along on the coattails. So there is no more transit for the internet. Almost every last piece of data you consume comes from a data center damn close to you or me or anyone else out there. And as the costs of building these data centers continues to plummet, computing gets cheaper, storage gets cheaper, these data centers fork out further and further and closer and closer, right? So there's no transit business left that's worth, worth a damn, nothing. And now we're having a fight over the access networks. <laughs> Google is not a stranger to access networks. There was Google Fire in the US, wasn't there? Well, Google started with a Wi-Fi network in the Bay Area. And Google Fi, um, Google Fiber, built, oddly enough, under Sprint's nose in uh, Kansas City. Google has certainly played in this space of building capable broadband infrastructure and certainly has the capital wherewithal to be able to contemplate large-scale investments at will. Apple is still sitting on its fund of money trying to figure out what to do with it. And again, if the real answer is all of our wealth is contingent on a capable and neutral access network infrastructure, then the best way we can provide that is by direct participation. And so these carriers ought to be downright careful as to whom they're inviting in their tent. There was this Australian entrepreneur, Alan Bond, in the 1980s, and Australians listening will bring up a wry smile. He built this business empire in a few years by basically borrowing extortionate amounts of money from banks all over the planet. And, and the story was, of course, that, that when Alan Bond borrowed you know, a million dollars from you, it was Alan's problem. But when Alan borrowed $100 billion from you, you had the problem, not Alan. And the issue is, if these content folks start buying into, through these levied fees or whatever, these access networks, 
it's not just going to simply be a payment across the desk. Oh, that's fine. You do what you want. We're just going to pay you money. There's going to be a certain quid pro quo. There's going to be a certain amount of, well, I'm going to do what you want now. And if they become the dominant funder of these access networks, then it's their access network. Theirs. So are we talking about walled gardens here? Oh, not necessarily. But let's again go back to our dear friends in South Korea. Would one regard the broadband infrastructure of South Korea as a critical national asset? I think any economy would, yes. Well, they're, they're in a restive part of the world and there's a lot of less than friendly disposed people all around the place in South Korea. So when one starts to talk in those terms to say, oh, national security, having a foreign entity over which they have no control, over which there is no accountability, over which they are indeed aliens running your critical national infrastructure, how do you sleep at night? Nervously. Once you start to cede control of these parts of your national infrastructure to folk who have an entirely different agenda to yours, then the outcomes are deeply disturbing in the long term. Not to get too political, but we can see this already happening in Europe in terms of their reliance on Russia for energy and the complications that they are facing to reduce their reliance on this have just been mounting. They're trying to solve a problem that took them decades to make. It wasn't a a sudden switch to that particular source. It took them a long time. And broadband is very similar. You can't just go, right, that's it, we're going to build another. These things are taking us an extraordinary amount of time. Why? Because it takes a lot of preparation to take a large amount of money and bury it in trenches in the ground. You know, it really does. It's not something that normally you'd consider as a winning move. But let's bury the money. That's the right thing to do with it. And so if that's what you're asking for, this is not going to be easy to back out on. Once you've actually invited them that closely in, if it all turns sour, you've got no plan B. You've got no other way out of this. And, and so this is the dilemma facing the regulator. Because how should you make rules? Should you simply go the, the Korean route, go, oh, well, yes, they have to pay their foreign, so we don't care, and then stand the risk that they almost overpay, they buy in, they take over because you wanted them to pay, the price of them paying is control. Or do you try and resist and go, no, 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 no. If you can't come to an agreement, the voting populace are denied Netflix. Denied YouTube, <gasps> denied Google search, and we're prepared to do this. And now, you know, I'd love to see a government pull that off because, again, you can't do that. We've already had elections fought in Australia over whether the broadband future was wired or wireless. We had this fight over should Google pay for news content? And in general, the issue really comes that. <sighs> There's a balance to be struck between allowing the local infrastructure an essential role in what is a national issue and allowing content and services as part of a global environment. Now, Australia developed a unique answer that no one else was actually willing to follow. They resumed the infrastructure of the access infrastructure, that last mile, back into the public purse. 
their dreams of selling it later on, I think are largely just smoke. But on the other hand, maybe that's a good thing. Because if you really are looking at rates of return of burying fibre in the ground of under 1% a year, very few commercial entities can actually afford that. Allowing the market to build broadband infrastructure really means you service the rich and everyone else can basically live on DSL, watch us care, because no one's paying for it. So what's your dream for your infrastructure? What do you want? And if the dream is, well, I want the centre to pay, I don't want to pay for this stuff, I want other people to provide it for me, you might as well ask Santa Claus or the Easter money to give you your broadband infrastructure because what you're going to get is about what Santa Claus or the Easter money are going to give you, not really what you wanted and certainly not stable over the longer term because they don't exist. They just don't. And this, I think, is, is the big outcome of, of this debate that, quite frankly, until we actually get to the point of looking at ISPs as common carriers, as soon as we sort of accept the fact, finally and forever, that network neutrality is essential for the well-being of infrastructure, as soon as we stop blaming ISPs for the content they carry and stop incenting ISPs to blackmail content providers to get money to carry that content, as soon as we stop that and actually have a neutral, independent carriage infrastructure, the better off we're all going to be. If we allow these really short-term fights to dominate this industry, it's going to be painful, difficult and protracted to try and fix up later. I'm not sure if that's a hopeful or a sad ending there, Robbie, but nevertheless, that's where we find ourselves. We have a habit of finding ourselves with these bittersweet endings, Jeff. (laughs) But again, it always comes back to we need to have these difficult discussions and be willing to discuss and challenge the foresight of the network and its health. Otherwise, if we continue on our current route, then the internet won't be as open, secure and stable as we set out for it to be. Hard conversations. But, you know, the least we can do, I think, Robbie, is call it out and call out what we see happening and try and help others to come along into the room to go, here's what we need to talk about as a community, as a country, as a set of users of the internet. Because if we don't do that, we're going to get played into bad places. I agree. Thanks again, Jeff, for helping us to confront another pressing issue and understand how we got to where we are. A pleasure as always. Until next time. Thanks, Robbie. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. If you'd like to learn more about this subject, be sure to check out Jeff's post on the APNIC blog, to which if you've got an opinion to share, leave a comment or get in touch about sharing a post on the subject. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. Also, check out the new Measurement at APNIC mailing list to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, and or seek feedback from either community on your research and measurement project. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.